On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamprin today. We are talking about traveling because everybody wants to get away, but even though things are opening up and things are getting better, there's still some things you need to be aware of. We're going to talk about that. We're going to be chatting about license stickers, which may or may not not have to be paid by you anymore. We will see. Housing, huge issue, huge problem. There is now a task force that has come out with recommendations. What are they saying? Is it possible to fix it? We're going to go down to the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor where the new trucker protest has popped up and is blocking the bridge. Sarah Nurse will join us from Beijing. Sarah Nurse from the Canadian women's hockey team that is off to a fantastic start there. And if you had to choose an official bird for the city of Hamilton, bird, B-I-R-D, an official bird, what bird would it be? We'll discuss. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario's Housing Affordability Task Force released their recommendations, plan, ideas this week. Came out with some suggestions and ideas on how we might, some things that might be useful to help us navigate this and get back on track. I want to bring in Richard Lyle, who's the president of RESCON, Residential Construction Council of Ontario. Richard, thank you for the time today. Hey, good morning. Great to be here. Well, I want to go through a few of these. Now, we can't obviously go through all. I think there were something like 50 recommendations. Uh, We'd be here till 4 o'clock tonight if we did that. But let's go through a couple of these or a few of these that really jumped off the page at me because they were either really bold or really um, unique. So we'll start with this one. There was one that said, if we were to change the zoning in residential areas, we could maybe allow drive houses, little houses to be built in driveways or backyards or something, maybe apartment buildings in established residential areas that would build up the density that would allow for more people in a smaller space and deal with some of this. Uh, Would that fly? Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, you have to think of it this way. Uh, We've got a housing crisis, no doubt about that. Uh, Everyone's aligned on this now this was actually a matter of debate for some time and a lot of the things that are in this recommendation are consistent with what other jurisdictions have done facing similar circumstances so when you know you talk about laneway housing and uh, you know additional units in a in a house and uh, removing exclusionary zoning where the only thing that can go on a lot is a single family home uh, and small apartment buildings in established neighborhoods. I mean, it, it just all makes sense. It's overdue, uh, and it will help with the housing crisis. That Now, that said, uh, let me play devil's advocate for a second, because I, like, I've never had sympathy for someone who buys a home near an airport and then complains about the noise. You knew what you were getting when you bought that house. However, if you bought a house and then they built an airport next to your house, I think you have a complaint because you weren't that's not what you bought. So yeah. if you bought a house in a neighborhood and suddenly they changed the zoning and said, you can build an apartment building next door or someone can build a house on the driveway between your houses, do you not have a legitimate complaint? Well, some of the changes there, you have to you have to put things in perspective. Like on main streets and avenues, main thoroughfares where that are served by mass transit and so on, they, they, they are providing for or recommending that you know, mid-sized apartment buildings uh, be able to go up there as of right relative to the zoning. In established neighborhoods, what they're talking about there is that you could build a triplex or maybe a quad 
or uh, say, for example, on on a, on a on a, a large corner, you could have, you know, like a, a small apartment building, possibly four stories. Uh, you know, that kind of thing is not unheard of. And one of the problems that we've faced, and one of the things that we're trying to come to terms with, is that. You know, we are growing as a society. We don't want urban sprawl anymore. That means more density. And that was, of course, the problem with the growth plan. The growth plan came in and said, okay, no more sprawl. And we were all fine with that. I mean, you know, basically, we don't want to use up uh, uh, or, or use as little of our farmland as possible for development. But then what they didn't do was allow for higher densities. That was kind of left to its own devices, and then they didn't pay attention to land, and then they didn't uh, pay attention to demographics. Uh, you know, we have the highest immigration rates in the, amongst the G7 countries, and we have the lowest amount of housing per capita. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a big reason why we've got a crisis on our hands right now. So, you know, within existing neighborhoods, it's not the end of the world. In fact, we used to do that 100 years ago. Uh, if you go to, say, certain older neighborhoods, you'll see some of these uh, fourplexes in amongst uh, single-family homes. Uh, but then exclusionary zoning kicked in, and then, you know, huge swaths of land were, were relegated to single-family homes only. And the ironic thing there is that, you know, you had people complaining about, well, somebody tore down their little bungalow and they're building this massive single-family home. Well, you know, anybody wants to sort of maximize the value of their properties in those areas, that's all you could do. You couldn't build a triplex or a fourplex or whatever, uh, which would allow for additional units of housing and comfortably fit within, you know, an established neighborhood. Another issue that was brought up here, uh, and this one I've heard from developers before, uh, I don't think this is going to be a surprise, developers complain often about the fact that City Hall, and I don't just mean here in Hamilton, I mean City Hall, the generic City Hall, moves slowly with giving zoning, with giving permits, with giving licenses. Is this a real issue, and can this easily be fixed? It's it's a huge issue, and we've been working, we've been advocating on changes relative to this for years. You know, the fact is, by and this isn't, by, this isn't the industry saying this or whatever, this is the World Bank saying this, this is the OECD saying this, you know, we rank 34th out of 35 OECD countries on how uh, how how uh, quickly we process applications. Uh, according to the World Bank, we rank 64th out of 190 countries on how we deal with construction permitting. I mean, we are slow to the point of being glacial and have been for years. Now, this isn't to say that there aren't certain municipalities that really do care about this and are trying and have been trying to do things about it. We've been advocating for the modernization and digitization of the process, and of course, getting rid of the antiquated zoning rules before and 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 the site plan approvals uh, process, which has been entirely problematic, and the fact that the timeline stipulated by the Planning Act to get these things done, uh, you know, often uh, quite frequently aren't met, and there's no consequences for that. So. You know, uh, we we can fix this. Other jurisdictions have done it already, so it's not like we're we're reinventing the wheel here or anything. We've just been slow to adapt, and of course, you know, we did not align housing planning with transit planning. We didn't align it with immigration. The demographics they used in the growth plan were 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 ten years old, you know, and didn't make any sense. And so. 
uh, we've ended up with this crisis. Uh, can it be fixed? Absolutely. And that's what, uh, you know, this, this, this report, these recommendations, and, you know, the number of the recommendations really points to how complex it is uh, in terms of the scale and scope. But, you know, there's no doubt that this can be fixed. There are many more. I wish we had more time to get into more of them. There was heritage designations that was up. There was a lot of other ones. Uh, It's a fascinating document. Uh, Richard Lyle, President of Residential Construction Council of Ontario. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You have heard probably in the last couple days, the rumors, the rumblings that, you know, those little stickers you have to pay 120 bucks for, for your driver's license for on the back of your car that will allow you to drive your car from year to year or else the police pull you over. Yeah. Well, we're hearing that the provincial government may be saying you don't have to do that anymore. They may be, if their stories are true, this may be a thing of the past. You may be off the hook for paying for that. Now, somehow they're probably still going to have to put something on your license to show that you are an approved driver. However, this would be, um, I think a popular move for an awful lot of people. Marvin Riders with the DeGroote School of Business. He joins us this morning. Marvin, thanks for the time today. Glad to be with you, Scott. So I'm thinking back in most, many elections, maybe not most, many elections, the government tries to come up with some new idea, some new issue that is irresistible to the voters. Um, The one that really comes to mind, obviously, is when Dalton McGinty came out with Family Day, a new stat holiday for everyone. Uh, It was just, hey, why would we not do this? This kind of seems like that. Let's throw something that people, and they'll all say, how could we not vote for these people? Mm-hmm. Well, let me start off by saying that the, there has been no legislation introduced. So uh, this is more of a rumor out of Queen's Park than a fact out of Queen's Park. And I make this distinction for the following reason. It would be one thing for the government to say, uh, we don't need you to go out and get a sticker every year. Great. However, if you read closely what did come out of Queen's Park, they said, but we will need you to register your car every year, except you don't have to get in the line, you don't have to go to a service Ontario area, you'll be able to do it online. Well, if I have to register my car every year, it wouldn't be that hard online to actually have me pay the fee online as well. The only difference is now I don't have to get a sticker to put on it. So it's not clear to me that they're actually canceling the fee they're canceling the sticker. Now, maybe I'm just being suspicious here. Maybe I'm just looking for the, for the dark cloud rather than the silver lining. Just again, to give you a sense of this, there's 8.5 million cars that are licensed to be on the road. If they each pay $120, you're talking about around a billion dollars of revenue that the government would be saying goodbye to if they waive the revenue completely. Is that a lot? Well, the revenue generated by the provincial government is around $150 billion a year, so it's less than 1% of the total. But on the other hand, it's not a trivial amount, and you know, a billion dollars would let you do a whole lot of other things. I, so I can imagine them canceling the sticker, but I can also imagine us still having to pay the fee. Just finding it in a different place somewhere. That we, we tell you, you're not going to do the sticker, so don't pay your 120 bucks. But hey, we got to put this other thing in. I mean, that's very possible. Because again, you know, Marvin, we, I think it's easy these days when we're hearing about federal deficits and spending and provincial debts and deficits yep. and in the billions and bi- hundreds of billions, trillion, over a trillion dollars now in the federal debt. 
it's easy to kind of poo-poo what a billion a billion dollars is still a lot of money. <laughs> well, it would be to me, and it would be to you and most of your listeners as well. Well, again, I, I want to be clear on this. They can say to people, look, you don't have to get in line. You don't have to come in and get a sticker. But you will have to go online, renew, and by the way, when you do that, pull out your credit card and pay the 120 bucks then for the renewal. Now, today what happens is a police officer pulls you over for some offense of whatever it is. They ask for your vehicle registration and your license, and then they go to the car, and they enter your license number in their database, and it tells them, more so than any sticker you got on the back, whether that's a valid license and whether the car is truly registered to you and what have you. So the, the, the idea is, why, why are we doing this? Why are we making you go get a sticker when it really no one puts any stock in it? In my own life, Scott, I've had a sticker stolen at one time. Somebody used a hairdryer to heat up the sticker. That loosened the gum, and they wow. were able to peel it off and they put it on their plate. My car was still fully registered, but I didn't have the sticker in the back. That wasn't good enough. I had to go get a replacement sticker. But getting rid of the sticker is one thing. Having you not pay to register your car annually is another. And it's not clear to me that's exactly what Doug is saying. Well, let's, for the sake of argument, because I think your your point is very valid that we're, I mean, right, what we're hearing right now is rumblings and rumors and ideas. But for the sake of argument, let's say they did decide, you know what, we're going to we're going to get rid of this cost. Yep. This seems politically because there's always political calculations yep. in these things. You know, it's great for a government to say, you know, we're going to give you a grant for this or a benefit for this or whatever. Yep. This would be something that is directly affecting your wallet. One hundred and twenty dollars. Clearly, I mean, this is the kind of thing governments love to do before elections if they can do it, because it is it is not obtuse it's not ethereal it's something real that we all understand right so again let's put a fine point on that we are facing a provincial election in about four months it'll be in early june uh and the last four years have not quite been what doug ford had hoped when he got elected he was going to be the champion of the little guy the champion of smaller government he was going to slash and burn and reduce our bills and what have you and in fact it's gone the opposite way thanks to COVID, he's had to do record spending the deficit this year the difference between what the government collects and what it spends is thirty three point one billion dollars in case that's news to you, this is the biggest deficit in, or this is the second biggest deficit in Ontario history. Last year's deficit was the largest, certainly much bigger than anything the Liberal Party of McGuinty or any other premier had run before all of this. This isn't what Doug Ford wanted. So, if he had to run on that record, he isn't. Oh, I'm not sure I'd get reelected like that. What can I give people? And let's suppose, just for the sake of argument, he was also considering reducing the tax on gasoline because gasoline prices are up. And I'll take one percent off that. Well, for your fill-up, it's going to be maybe you know thirty cents, fifty cents, seventy-five cents. You'd never notice it. Oh yes, over the course of the year, it would add up to tens of dollars, maybe even over $100. But this is a one-time annual payment of $120. It's very visible to you when you go to spend it. It's annoying to you when you go to spend it. So to make mm. it go away, he's hoping that that might tip the balance and say, okay, yeah, I know the last four years weren't what we wanted, but look, I, I, I saved you $120. Will that be enough? I don't know. I don't really get a good sense of how the electorate is feeling. Uh, I know it's very, very early, Scott. My early prediction in my crystal ball is that the Conservatives are going to get reelected, just might fall from a majority to a minority. 
We will see. And we will see if this makes any kind of difference in that. Uh, Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business, as always, thank you for the time. Happy to be with you, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a chance when you look outside and you see that white stuff that you may be tempted to go on to some travel website or call your local travel agent and say, you know what, it is time to get away. I need somewhere with palm trees and drinks with umbrellas, which really does sound fantastic about now. I am dying to do that myself. However, however, it is worth pointing out that there are still some issues around traveling that you probably should be aware of before you sign up, just, you know, because you don't you don't want to have an unpleasant surprise after or even during your vacation. Barry Choi is a travel expert. We love having him on the show. Barry, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. So yeah, so I, I go online, I sign up, I uh, I end up down in the Caribbean, and then what? <laughs> well, first off, let's point out the fact that there is still a, a travel advisory from the government of Canada to avoid all non-essential travel. I want to make that very clear. That said, I understand uh, people are traveling, uh, and, and you're right, sitting by a beach with a drink with an umbrella in it is really appealing. But for people who are down there, I advise this, uh, you know, your research begins before you even go. The rules are constantly changing, you know, PCR tests, rules to come back. You really need to be aware of what's going on in the world. And the funny thing is, you know, what we're talking about right now may be different the day you depart. So definitely do your research. Well, okay. So that's, that's to me is the trickiest part about this is that I can say, like, I don't know how many people still do things like, remember the last minute club once upon a time where you booked a trip (laughs) and left the next day? People still do that. But most people, Barry, are booking at least a couple weeks or a month in advance. And you're right. In that period of time, there's an awful lot of things that can change. So what if you do book and something does then change under your feet? You know, you have to take the best case scenario and, and prepare yourself is, is what I mean by that. So, you know, right now, the standard rules are, are a lot of destinations require you to take a PCR test to get down. If you're fully vaccinated, uh, the odds are you won't have to quarantine. But to protect yourself, there are a few things you can do. You can purchase travel insurance. You can purchase fully refundable accommodations. Uh, some airfare classes also offer full refunds, but they, they cost more. Uh, so being flexible is key and just knowing what you're getting yourself into, uh, because there's a lot of rules involved. You, you know, you think about March break is about a month away. A lot of parents are thinking about, you know, they need that break. It's been a really harsh winter here in Ontario. They would love that sun, but what they might not realize that is if you pull your kids out of school and take them to another country, they're not allowed back in for 14 days. So that one week March break has all of a sudden become three weeks. So this is what I mean. You really need to do your research. A kid's dream. I'm telling you, a kid's absolute dream. <laughs> Mom, take me. I promise. It's, uh, okay. So two things, two things I want to get into specifically on this one. The first one you mentioned, travel insurance. Mm-hmm. Many people have insurance built into either their credit card or something else. They have a, an insurance plan that they may mm-hmm. lean on that they have used many, many times in the past. Someone pointed out to me, though, the other day, a lot of those now have a rider in there or a caveat <laughs> that says, yeah, we're good to cover you if you break your leg or if you get hepatitis or whatever. But if you get COVID while you're away, you're on your own. 
Yeah, I'm glad you called that up because it's 100% true. You know, in the past, I would rely on my wife's uh, work travel insurance. It was adequate. But I did look at the policy and they have specifically said it does not cover COVID-19 this time uh, or at all right now. So if you're so basically anyone in a similar situation would have to purchase an outside travel insurance policy. Uh, it's not too expensive to be realistic. You can get like a multi-trip package that covers multiple trips per year and all only cost you about like a hundred bucks, 200 bucks, depending on, on your situation. So it's pretty affordable, but that said, it is an additional cost that you need to think about. So you think about taking PCR tests down as a family, that extra insurance you got to buy, all that stuff adds up. Uh, and, and like any insurance policy, you always need to read the terms and conditions. And, and I know we've been talking strictly about travel medical, but you also need to think about trip cancellation, trip interruption. That's not a standard default policy that comes with it. It's an additional thing you need to purchase. Yeah, and, and I know that a number of places, cruises especially right now, um, are doing that even without asking. They now, a lot of them are having a, a free cancellation that we won't, you know, cruises you usually have to pay fully like 75 days out. Now they're saying mm-hmm. 48 hours before you can cancel if you don't feel safe, which is really weird for that industry <laughs> to do that, but they need people to come back, right? They got to do something. You know, I will say this, a lot of the travel operators, industry operators have made uh, changes to their policies that have benefited consumers. Uh, but again, it does still come down to the terms and conditions. It's great that you can cancel within 48 hours, you know, one week, whatever, but it still comes down to a straight travel credit. Uh, you know, a lot of people yes. aren't taking a cruise ship out of Lake Ontario, right? So <laughs> you, you got to look not. at your- yeah, your, your your flight details, like, you know, what is your cancellation policy with the flight? You, you know, to be fair, a lot of airlines have been great. You're getting a travel credit. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of people don't like the fact that they're they're getting a credit and not their money back uh, because of COVID-19. But, you know, I have to say this. We've been living in COVID-19 for almost two years now. Uh, airlines have been generous. Hotels have been generous. Their terms and conditions are pretty straightforward. They've laid it out. They've made changes. And if you're booking something now and you, and you regret the decision after the fact, that's on you. Barry, are you are you booking that Lake Ontario cruise with stops in Rochester and um, I don't know wherever else the port of call maybe? I'm not really sure. Um, <laughs> I am not glad. at this moment. No, not not quite as exciting. Uh, but you know, <laughs> maybe well, one day. <laughs> maybe one day. All right. Uh, very quickly, because the other thing you mentioned is the PCR tests. Uh, these ones, I assume are not the ones that you can just um, delicately touch your nose with and wait 15 minutes. These are the uh, the full poke your pituitary gland ones and the ones that cost money to get done too. You, you know what? There aren't so invasive ones these days. Switch at Health, which is uh, a Canada operator, offers some. You can buy them uh, at home and take them with you. But a lot of countries, destinations, resorts, they have testing on site that you can do also. So it's very convenient these days depending on where you're going. Yeah, because that's the other thing is that there, there is, as you mentioned, an additional cost at a lot of these places that uh, to get back into the country, you have to have had a test. And I've heard of up to like 200, 250 bucks in some cases to get those done. I mean, that that's a, a family of four. There's a thousand <laughs> bucks more just to come home. Yeah, and that's almost each way too. You know, like we were saying, it, it's an additional cost and you want to research it because sometimes a lot of these destinations, uh, they might be free. Uh, they might be on site. You might have to go on site. So there's a lot of logistics involved also. You know what? I, I, I hate to uh, suggest this, Barry, but you know, you can go on YouTube now and watch these channels where they just like fly over the Caribbean or whatever. That may be the best way to travel these days, at least for the next little while. Who knows? Uh, Barry Choi, always appreciate having you on here. Thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. Just can't wait to get back to traveling again. 
without all the stuff. You probably share that same sentiment. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The convoy, the trucker protest, whatever you want to call it, that took place in Ottawa, that started in Ottawa, and as you know, has spread across different cities in the country, has now taken some kind of route at the Ambassador Bridge. Um, the, uh, the Apparently there is a big backup there from protesters who are sympathetic with the protesters in Ottawa. It is, you know, the, the whole, it, the story goes on and on. Sean O'Shea, consumer and investigative reporter with Global News is on site. He joins us now. Sean, how are you today? Well, thank you. Uh, good morning, Scott. What, um, what is going on this morning? Is, is it still going on there now? Is the, is the bridge still blocked this morning? Absolutely. Uh, no traffic coming into Canada across the Ambassador Bridge. I'm standing at the corner um, of uh, Huron Church Road and College, which is just across on the Canadian side. If you're looking at the bridge, as I am right now, the Canadian Border Services Agency would be about 100 metres in front, and you've got about 40 or so, maybe 50 trucks that are blocking on that side. So the reason the bridge is closed is because if you came across, there'd be nowhere for those trucks to go. They've impeded the flow, and it's exactly the same as it was uh, yesterday. And uh, all this started, of course, uh, on Monday afternoon. No trucks coming into Canada on this very critical port. Can uh, now, when you say no trucks, can cars still get across, or is the whole bridge blocked? The whole bridge is blocked here. If road, car traffic is possible uh, uh, on the Windsor Tunnel, uh, but the Ambassador Bridge was a privately owned bridge in which handles okay. all the commercial traffic. It's absolutely closed to the Canadian side. Some trucks, one lane was open uh, for trucks to go across into the United States, but critically, nothing coming to Canada. Why here? I mean, there are lots of bridges and maybe other ones across in this country are being blocked as well, but why the Ambassador Bridge? Why this area? They picked the biggest one, Scott. They picked the one that was going to have the most pain. Uh, this bridge represents around 30% of all the truck traffic between Canada and the United States, all the trade, about 27% of all the dollar value of trade. So you pick the big one that really is going to hurt and has been hurting. So you've got Fresh produce coming across. You've got auto parts supplies. You've got everything and anything that's coming into southern Ontario coming through here. I mean, the Niagara bridges are key, too. But this one, from a dollars and cents and a volume perspective, this is the big one. And so what's happened is that the trucks that would normally come here have been diverted over to the Blue Water Bridge at Sarnia. It's a much smaller port. Uh, it can't handle uh, the, the number of trucks that we're seeing. And yesterday, uh, one of the NBC reporters who I work with, uh, said that the backup there was 15 kilometers long trying to get into Canada. So people waiting for goods and supplies, it's just, it's it's tremendously going to be difficult for the next few days. What has the response been? I mean, obviously police in Ottawa have taken heat for what they've done or not done. Um, is anything being done there or is it just on standby? It's absolutely standby. Uh, talked to some police off camera yesterday. Uh, they're concerned about doing anything. There's been no directive. Uh, there's been discussions with the truckers here. But the truckers have uh, have the upper hand. They got in here. Uh, the police didn't prevent them from getting here, as we, we did see in Toronto on the weekend, where police pre-positioned. Here, you've got the trucks that are all set up. The police are standing back. Uh, the chief of police hasn't said anything publicly. The mayor and the owner of the bridge has said, look, we have to have this resolved. This is, can't go on for much longer. But um, there's, there's been no effort to do that. There was a report in the Windsor Star yesterday where uh, there was an effort apparently to uh, remove one of the vehicles with a tow truck. 
Um, many of the people, according to the reporters, said that uh, people got out of trucks with a tire with tire irons. That quickly ended. And so, you know, the police are at this point perhaps feeling like there's nothing they can do given the numbers. They're simply here on standby. They've got some of the up off the um, roads leading to where I'm standing blocked off, but that's it. Is there any way to tell, and it's probably a very difficult question to ask, is there any way to tell if all the trucks that are on there now blocking it are part of a convoy, or did so, are some trucks that were bringing goods in that got caught in the middle of this and are now stuck? These are the, the trucks that are blocking the bridge, Scott. These are trucks that are, are, and I say trucks, I want to be careful because it's trucks and it's pickup trucks and it's other vehicles. Um, they're, you know, they're people who are supporting this cause. I mean, I talked to some people from uh, Leamington, you know, just down the road from, from Windsor who are supporters. They haven't come a huge distance, but they believe in the cause. Many of the signs are decked out with, you know, we support uh, the convoy, we support uh, no mandates, uh, anti-Trudeau, anti-government signs. It's the same flavor uh, of the meal that we're getting in places like Ottawa and in Toronto and in other parts of the country. Uh, but it is, uh, as I just told our, our Global News uh, Toronto morning show, uh, the response here has been a lot more charitable to people in the media, for example, where it was much more hostile there. Mm. It's much more laid back here. But the message overall is the same. They want the mandates to end, and they feel absolutely justified in shutting down the bridge in order to try to make that happen. And just before we let you go, Sean, because I know you got to run, but um, obviously if you're sitting in a truck on a bridge in the middle of winter, it's cold. They're probably not turning off their engines. They're idling. Are people bringing them stuff? Are people br- trying to bring fuel or bring gas? Is anyone supporting them beyond those who are in the vehicles? The people here are very well supplied. Uh, they were barbecuing yesterday. Their, their trucks have supplies. But you're right about diesel. The diesel engines are running all the time. Uh, they're here for a period of time. I don't think they need any resupply. And the reality is there are streets adjoining here. It wouldn't be very difficult for them to get more uh, supply of anything that they want. And, and so just like we've seen in Ottawa, if you can allow people to be refueled and if you can allow the restocking to take place, there's not a lot of uh, necessity for people to, to go away. And they've told me yesterday, and I'm sure they'll say the same thing today, that they've got no plan of going away. That is Sean O'Shea, consumer and investigative reporter with Global News in Windsor at the Ambassador Bridge. Sean, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for jumping on today. Thank you. All the best. Have a good day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Beijing, I, I can't even keep track of what time it is in Beijing right now. I, I have completely lost the ability. But uh, someone who can is Hamilton Sarah Nurse, who was over there with the women's hockey team. Um, not only perfect record, Sarah, uh, four goals, a hat trick for you. Uh, could things be any better right now for you guys? Yeah, I think things are going pretty well as we uh, finish off our group play uh, here in Beijing. It's been a lot of fun, and I think that's been the most important part for us. Um, Obviously, we wanted to come here. Uh, We have our sights set on a medal, but we also wanted to have a ton of fun, and that's what we've been doing uh, thus far, and I think it's translated on the ice with us scoring a lot of goals. I mean, you guys have had, uh, over the last couple of years, uh, your schedule has been bizarre because there's been things that have been on and then off and then canceled and then uncanceled and recanceled and uncan. I mean, it doesn't seem though, when I, when we watch you and your team, it doesn't seem really to have affected you guys at all, all the uncertainty. No, I think uh, that's the big thing about our team is being able to be adaptable. Uh, As you mentioned over the last few years, just having so many things canceled and we've always kind of been um, at that arm's length where it's like, you got to be ready to go whenever you get the nod. And so uh, even within this tournament, we've had a couple uh, little delays and and mishaps, but honestly, this team's just ready to go whenever we're given the opportunity. Has it felt weird though? 
again, the last couple of years because it's so unscheduled. It's so unpredictable. Has it felt weird? It's felt totally different from any other uh, hockey seasons that we've had in the past, for sure. Even this entire season leading up to Beijing, there have been uh, differences in schedules and and there has been plan A, B, C all the way down to <laughs> B at this point. Um, and so it's definitely been different, but honestly, I wouldn't change it for the world. And I think it's helped us uh, get to the point to where we are here as a team in Beijing. Okay, so plan A, B, C, D. What letter on the plan list was wearing a mask during a game? <laughs> oh man, I don't know. I'm going to have to talk to Gina about that one, but I, I don't think we ever thought we'd get to that point. But honestly, uh, here with the COC and, and also with our team doctors, um, with Hockey Canada, like we know that they've had our best interests of our health and safety, um, at top of mind the whole time. And so when they came in and said, this is the deal, we're going to play in mass, uh, it was a really a no brainer because ultimately we want to play and we want to compete. And for us, we're no strangers with wearing masks on the ice. We've been doing it for pretty much the last two really? years. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've actually been uh, using them in Calgary. Um, before we were centralized, we were using them while we were in Ontario and Hamilton and Toronto. And so we're really no strangers to wearing masks on the ice. So yeah, it was a no brainer for us. So because because I was going to say like people who go to the gym and certainly they're not playing at a level you are doing anything, but you know, people are always complaining, oh, it's so hot. You can't breathe all the rest. I, I'm amazed that it, it's no it's no problem for you guys. Yeah, well, I would love to play without the mask, uh, for sure. That would be my first, um, I guess, priority. But honestly, this is a long tournament. So when we think about it, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And if we can protect ourselves um, at this early stage in the tournament, so we can have that longevity, keep everybody safe and healthy to make sure that we can play as we go through this medal round. Uh, you said about health and safety. Honestly, how, how many times have you had something stuck up your nose since you've arrived there for a test? Is it like every single day? Yeah, we were testing every day here. Um, again, that's such a huge part of how we get to be here um, as a Team Canada is the fact that we have these testing protocols in place. And so, uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a nuisance for sure. But at the end of the day, knowing that everybody's negative when we go into compete um, and train is, is really huge for us. And so, uh, yeah, it's just another another thing here in Beijing that we've got to deal with. And it's not just that. I mean, you've you've been to an Olympics before. You're in Pyeongchang. You, you've been through this. You know what a normal Olympics is supposed to be like. How different or similar is what you're going through? I don't just mean on the ice. I mean, in life, in the athletes' fields, everything. How How different or the same is it from that last experience? It is definitely very different. Um, obviously in Bay or in Pyeongchang, excuse me, we had our family, we had our friends, there were, there were fans in the stands. And so that's very different from a performance standpoint, but it's, it's honestly been pretty nice. Um, obviously we've been able to connect with our families back home, uh, throughout the entire tournament, but honestly, it's, it's a little bit less pressure off us. You know, we feel very rested, um, as we have our off days and we've gotten to spend a lot more time here together as a team, which has been absolutely incredible. Uh, We've come up with creative things to do here in the village, but uh, yeah, it's just been different. Um, and I think every Olympic experience is different. And so as I, as I look back from Pyeongchang here to Beijing, uh, I, I wouldn't trade either of these experiences for the world. We always hear though, when athletes are talking about the Olympic experience, a big part of it is the athlete's village and the chance to interact with other athletes and stuff. It, does that still happen now? Or is it mostly just with your team and then to the rink and then back with your team? 
Yeah, I think that interaction is definitely a little bit lower just because we all came here to do a job. You know, we all came here to compete uh, on behalf of our countries and we've all been training for this for so long. And so we do want to stay safe and healthy and also respect all the other athletes and coaches in the village here as well. Um, I know in our building, we are with the men's and women's hockey team. And so although we do keep our distance from the men's team, we do still get to see them, wish them good luck uh, as, at the start of their tournament. And they ask us how, how our games are going. And so we've had uh, some interaction for sure, but we definitely want to keep that um, kind of closed loop, kind of closed bubble uh, with our team just to make sure that we can uh, keep ourselves healthy. And that's another big part of it too, is athletes when they're done. I know you're you're there still with a goal and you've still got work to do, but when that's done, usually you would be able to go and watch other events or do, will you be able to do that or is it stay home once this is over? Yeah, I think the uh, interesting thing about our event is because we go probably the longest out of any events here. We started before the opening ceremonies and I think our last game is um, three or four days before closing ceremonies. And so realistically, if this was a normal Olympics, anyways, we would probably be pretty focused on what we're doing, our practices, our games, our, our video meetings and all that fun stuff. And so there's not a ton of time to actually get out and see events. We, we try to fit it in when we can, but honestly, because our event is so long, we don't really get those opportunities until after. So hopefully there's still some uh, athletes kicking around and some events mm-hmm. going on once we uh, finish off on the uh, 17th. So you guys get Sweden uh, in the quarterfinals. Um, look, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. Everybody in the world expects that you guys are enormous favorites and are going to win. How, how do you stay focused, the, the kind of focus you need to when there is that kind of not only expectation, but when you're such enormous favorites to, to win this game? Yeah, you know what? As we've gone through this tournament, um, a huge focus that we've uh, focused on is really ourselves. Uh, of course, we do some pre-scout on the teams that we're playing, but we believe that our game and, and how we play it and playing the right way is going to elevate us and, and bring us through the medal round so that hopefully we get a gold medal at the end of this. And so going into this next game, it, it doesn't change anything for us. You know, we attack this game against Sweden the same way we attack a game against Finland, a game against the United States, like really our game plan doesn't change. And so going into this quarterfinal game, it's just another step on the ladder for us as we uh, want to get to that gold medal game on the 17th. All right, we got to go. But you mentioned gold. I wasn't going to bring it up if you didn't. But um, with all the success that all the nurse family and extended family. Has any nurse ever won an Olympic gold medal? I don't think so. Have they? No, no. Uh, so this would I be the first. So yeah, yeah. I think I'm the only one who has a medal so far. So I'm hoping, uh, and in four years, Keel have a chance to get back on the podium as well. But yeah, this could be definitely a first for the nurse family. Yeah. But you know what? That's, that's bragging rights in that family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This has got to bring something <laughs> to the table at Christmas time, I guess. Uh, Sarah Nurse, listen, thanks so much for doing this. Enjoy the time and uh, good luck the rest of the way. You've been killing it so far. Keep going. Thank you. Have a great day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Did you know that Hamilton has official colors? We do. Navy blue and camel. Not not sure where we came up with the camel idea. Not really from around here, but that's our colors. Did you know that Hamilton has an official bird? Well, we don't. But we may soon. That's why we're talking about this. A poll is being held to determine what bird should become our official city bird. Now, the list has already been whittled down to 10 finalists. What are they? Well, stick around. We're going to tell you in just a second. But I want to bring in Barry Coombs. He's the founder, founding co-chair of Bird Friendly Hamilton, who is helping to come up with this winning bird. Barry, how are you this morning? 
Very well. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to have you along. So tell me, why do we need an official bird? Well, having an official bird will uh, draw attention to the plight of birds and the need for protecting them in our urban environments. Okay, so so do other cities have official birds? Are we behind the curve on this one? A little bit. Uh, the bird-friendly team in London, Ontario, chose Northern Cardinal within the past year. Toronto has the Blue Jay, which I believe is official. Ontario, by the way, has the Common Loon. And Vancouver has the Anna's Hummingbird, just to name a few. And now that you say it, of course, yeah, we think of the loon, of course. And it didn't even dawn on me, of course, maybe it's the hour of the morning, I'm not sure. But of course, we all think of the loon as very Canadian or very Ontarian, and, and the blue jay makes a ton of sense. So, okay, so we, we decided that we're going to do this. Now, if you say it's to help with preservation and awareness, how would an official bird be used by the city? Like, would it be on documents? Would it be, what would be the, the way that this would be presented to the world that we had this bird? I think that it would be on a city website. I think it would be a, sort of a, a symbol of pride in this aspect of our natural envir environment, which Hamilton is so well known for. And I, again, I do think that it would draw attention to the uh, efforts of our bird-friendly Hamilton Burlington team and many other uh, excellent local environmental organizations and their efforts to uh, preserve the natural environment in Hamilton. Now, I said I was going to go through the list for people. There are, you have whittled it down to 10. I understand you had a lot more than that that were put forward originally, but it's been whittled down to 10. Here's the list. Bald Eagle, Carolina Wren, Chimney Swift, Double Crested Cormorant, Killdeer, Northern Cardinal, Northern Mockingbird, Peregrine Falcon, Red-Tailed Hawk, and Turkey Vulture. So, Barry, which one? Now, you're probably going to say, well, I can't, you know, try and affect the results. That's okay. Which one would be your choice? Because you get one vote, I'm assuming, like everyone else. Which one would be your choice? Well, excuse me. Uh, some of the birds, most of the birds were chosen through a nomination phase of our of our poll, uh, which concluded recently. But team members also were allowed to uh, nominate some birds. And I nominated the Carolina Wren. And the Carolina Wren is named not just after the Carolinas in the, uh, the states of the Union, but after Carolinian Forest. And Hamilton is at the northern end, really, of the Carolinian Forest, which is a very special sort of uh, eco or biosphere type of uh, environment. The Carolina Wren is a feisty, colorful, and rather noisy little bird that we get in our <laughs> backyards and in our parks okay. and our forests. So they are around here. Forgive the stupid question, but they are in this area. They certainly are. Okay. See, I would go with three. I, I would go with three, two of one and one of another. You ready for this one? I would I'm have ready. two kill deer, a mockingbird. <laughs> right? Very, that's, it's, hey, it's early. It's the best I can do. Um, but the truth is, while you're, I mean, you make a ton of sense for why the Carolina Wren would be the one. I got to believe that considering all over the years, the publicity and the attention and everything else that the Peregrine Falcon has become in some ways kind of synonymous with the city, hasn't it? The Peregrine Falcon is, I think, a front runner, perhaps, in the Hamilton City Bird Competition. Uh, the, the Peregrine Falcon nesting site at the Sheraton Hotel has become, uh, I think, an object of civic pride. And sure. many Hamiltonians follow the webcam and their progress every year. 
Yeah, and and I, I say one of the great things about this, and uh, once again, you'll forgive me because I, I I look at this list and I didn't know what all of these birds looked like or sounded like, or I mean, some of them are very familiar, obviously, and some of them I didn't. It was a great education for me even just to go through this list of 10 because some of these as i say were, were completely unfamiliar to me but it was great to be able to see and then go you know that would be kind of cool or that would that would be a good thing to represent us that's it, it was it was it's a good idea i think just even just expose this to people like me who don't necessarily go out bird watching every day well i'm pleased to hear that and if you go on to our facebook page or a website to and see the form You'll see a photograph of each candidate as well as a descriptor telling you a little bit about them and why they would be a good bird for the city. So if they want to go on, let's say Facebook is probably easy. So if it was Facebook, just go on to Bird Friendly Hamilton or Bird Friendly Hamilton Burlington or what would they look up? Yeah, it is Bird Friendly Hamilton Burlington. And anybody in Burlington who's listening right now also gets the uh, opportunity to vote because we have a separate list and a separate poll for Burlington. It is, uh, it is a fun idea. You know, we, um, these days we need fun ideas for stuff. Take away from some of the more serious things. This is a great idea to choose an official bird for the city of Hamilton. Um, Barry Coombs, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. And I hope everybody gets out to vote. Uh, there you go. You can go onto Facebook and cast your vote. Everyone gets to have a vote. You don't have to be a bird watcher. You can just, you know, choose whatever you like. So you know, something something to do this morning before you really dive into work or whatever else you're going to be doing. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.